Hey, Miles, which... Whoa. Is that Secret Wars? Yep. I think it's time. Well, as long as we don't have to cover them. Well, I was thinking about that, and Secret Wars 2 is starting to cross over into most of the X-Books where we are. Plus, there's that whole big 2015 event whoa, whoa, coming up. Whoa, Miles, Miles, that's like 20 issues. 21? And we usually do, what, four in an episode? We just don't have time for this. I mean, Sai's coming on next week to talk about Legion. We've got all the 50th episode stuff that we're trying to schedule around. Oh, it, it's cool. I, I figured we could just knock it all out in one episode. What? Hi, I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 43rd episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So yeah, Secret Wars 1 and 2. Now, I should say we were not originally planning to cover this. In fact, we were rather adamantly originally planning to not cover this. I think you were a little more adamant than I was about the whole thing. Because it's terrible. Well. Then we were reading through X-Men from the mid-80s, and we realized that Secret Wars 2 crosses over with everything nonstop. And at the same time, Marvel had announced their big Battleworld Secret Wars 2015 event, you listeners are apparently extremely concerned about Secret Wars, and so we thought as we do this podcast as a public service, filling in the places where the government has fallen short in its X-Men explanation. Yes, this is us taking an adamantium bullet to the head for you guys. We have done a ton of research. We have made the requisite offerings to Sean Howe of incense and little scraps of 80s ephemera. I do want to clarify. So we're going to be covering Secret Wars 1 and 2, and obviously that is a lot of comics right there. 21 issues does not translate into 21 issues of plot, and specifically does not translate into 21 issues of X-Men relevant plot. It doesn't translate into 21 issues of worthwhile plot. We've described Secret Wars 1 before as basically the equivalent of a kid banging together handfuls of action figures, and that's really all it is. Secret Wars 2 is more interesting for values of the term that we'll get into in more depth later. But again, this is primarily an X-Men podcast. And so figuring out just how deep we want this dive to be took some feeling out for this episode. So let's dive into Secret Wars 1. Now, Secret Wars was the product of Marvel's collaboration with, I believe, Mattel. And Mattel had done focus group testing, and they had determined that the two words that really titillated kids these days were secret and war. And so they asked Marvel to develop a series called Secret Wars. They could then develop action figure lines out of. This came right on the tail of DC teaming up with Kenner to put out superhero action figures. Marvel felt like they had to, you know, jump on the bandwagon and catch up. And the result is Secret Wars 1, which again really feels like 12 issues of action figure ads. So action figures tend to come out in waves, like they'll release, you know, eight action figures and then eight more later on, and then they'll just keep going as long as the line's successful. The first line of Secret Wars action figures were all characters that were, you know, in the comics. After that, Mattel just totally stopped giving a shit. They had, like, Green Goblin and Iceman and all these characters that were completely unrelated. I gotta say, so Secret Wars is kind of terrible, but I gotta give it props for one thing, which is that it's a crossover event that doesn't derail much. Secret Wars 1, I should specify. Secret Wars 2 derails the hell out of everything. Secret Wars came out over a year, basically 12 issues, 12 months, or maybe it was 13 months, I don't remember. That meant that you basically got to see the consequences of Secret Wars before the series had actually been fully published. So in that regard, it works well, but following it at the time must have felt pretty freaking weird. Now, the premise of Secret Wars is that all of the heroes and villains have either voluntarily gone through this crack of reality or been dragged through to this sort of amalgamated universe. 
Yeah, and when they start out, they're on these space stations. There's a hero space station and a villain space station because this series is all about arbitrary definitions of morality. And I should qualify that when I say amalgamated, I don't mean amalgam or anything related to amalgam, just a bunch of stuff smushed together. So there's like some alien planets and a suburb of Denver and yeah. 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 So on the hero side, we basically have a bunch of Avengers, a bunch of X-Men, most of the Fantastic Four, and a couple others. So specifically, going down the list, we have Wasp, She-Hulk, Captain Marvel, now that's Monica Rambeau, not Carol Danvers or her predecessor, Captain America, Thor, Hawkeye, and Iron Man, but this Iron Man is James Rhodes. From the X-Men, we have Professor Xavier, Storm, Nightcrawler, Rogue, Cyclops, yanked out of his honeymoon, Wolverine, Colossus, and Lockheed. And the FF, it's Mr. Fantastic, Human Torch, and The Thing. The Invisible Woman's not around. The Invisible Woman is, at this point, I think, very, very pregnant with Valeria. We also have the Hulk and Spider-Man, and we'll soon see a hero show up named Spider-Woman. Not Jessica Drew, this is a different Spider-Woman who I guess just happened to be in the part of Denver that got yanked into Battle World. You know, Denver. Spider-Woman. Next time you're in, like, the Denver airport, just ask around. Everybody knows her there. Among the villains. And, man, they are front and center in this. We have the Wrecking Crew. Wrecker, Thunderball, Piledriver, and Bulldozer. And what I like about the Wrecking Crew is they're just bad guys. Like, their job is crime. And that's pretty much the whole thing. Like, hey, we're a vaguely Wrecking-themed group of supervillains. We're gonna rob some banks or rob some other stuff. Yeah, they are uncomplicated gentlemen. You know what you're getting with the Wrecking Crew. You know, they talk about with presidential candidates, how comfortable would you be getting a beer with them? I want to get a beer with a Wrecking Crew. And then leave before the inevitable barroom brawl that causes millions of dollars of property damage. That's kind of how I feel about Juggernaut. I feel like he would be a good drinking buddy for about the first half a drink. We also have not really many team members aside from them on the villain side because villains tend not to work well with teams. We have the Enchantress, Ultron, the Absorbing Man, Kang, the Lizard, Molecule Man, Dr. Octopus, Dr. Doom, and freaking Galactus. Yes, Galactus gets brought in by the Beyonder. Later, they'll be joined by Titania, Volcana, and Claw. Titania and Volcana were both created in Secret Wars. Claw, counter to his name, is an audio-themed villain. You know, like the Claw of Audio. You haven't heard that phrase? The Claw of Audio? Everybody says it. Now, there's one guy we didn't mention because he is someone who you'd think would be categorized with the villains, but actually ends up with the heroes and is the subject of much consternation, and that is Magneto. This takes place after Uncanny X-Men number 150, which was where we first really got that nuance and depth to Magneto. We learn a little bit about his past, uh, having survived the Holocaust and stuff like that. This, however, was the first time Marvel had really said, yeah, Magneto, you could totally look at him as a hero. And the Beyonder apparently does, because the Beyonder doesn't really have a sense of good and evil as humans define them, and he has separated people according to their motives and basically whether they're selfish or altruistic. Okay, that brings us to who is the Beyonder? What is the Beyonder in Secret Wars 1? We'll look a lot at what he is in Secret Wars 2, which is kind of its own thing, but who is he right here? Well, I sort of think of the Beyonder in Secret Wars 1 as Mattel. Yeah, pretty much. He's just sort of this force that brings them together, and he actually announces himself very shortly after the heroes and villains show up in their respective space stations, saying, I am from beyond. Slay your enemies, and all you desire shall be yours. Nothing you dream of is impossible for me to accomplish. And that's pretty much his entire personality in Secret Wars 1. Yeah, he's a disembodied voice who just wants everyone to fight for fun. Secret Wars 1 never gets beyond that premise. You can see some kind of attempts at character development in here, but it's a 12-issue toy ad. There is a premise beyond just, hey dudes, fight. Like, the Beyonder comes from a place where he is the entire universe, so he sees all these individuals and wants to understand them, realizes he wants to understand desire, and so that's why this conflict occurs. He wants to see how they interact when getting their desire is what's on the line, but it's a pretty flimsy premise, to be honest. There's another guy, you mentioned him in the villains, and this is the guy who's going to emerge as sort of the lead in this, and that's Molecule Man. Uh, Yeah, which is kind of surprising, because at this point, he's this very timid, reformed supervillain who just gets, you know, 
know, brought in here by the Beyonder, and he ends up becoming a big deal in Secret Wars 1. He ends up sort of in a central leadership role for the villains after Doom does his own thing, and in Secret Wars 2, he's an even bigger deal. By this point, he's sort of a pet character of Jim Shooter's. He's been around for a long time, but Shooter kind of dusted him off in Avengers and added this whole Revenge of the Nerds angle and made him this sort of tragic, compelling character. And... Oh, God, I really dislike Molecule Man. <laughs> oh, man, see, I think he's charming. I think he's trying, but I think in some ways he's the equivalent to the things I find frustrating about Firestar, in that he's so obviously written to be, like, he's got a big sign around his neck saying, I am sympathetic. Here's how this worked for me. So, Secret Wars is 12 issues, Secret Wars 2 is 9 issues. That's a lot of comics to read if you don't like them. There's a lot to not like, to be fair, but if I'm going to spend that much time with something, I want to find some stuff to enjoy. And so for me, a lot of the story of my going back into Secret Wars and Secret Wars 2 is like how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. It's how I learned to stop worrying and love, well, maybe not love, but appreciate Secret Wars. And, you know, that includes things like appreciating Molecule Man, despite the fact that he's not at all subtle. See, you did this on a very textual level. My solution to this problem involved the development of a lot of really weird metatextual narrative, which I'll mostly get to in Secret Wars too. but I have some really complicated theories. For me, I think I just sort of gave myself Stockholm Syndrome, but, you know, you do what you gotta. I do not recommend reading Secret Wars. I recommend reading about five issues of Secret Wars too, because it's just bafflingly hilarious. But Secret Wars 1 just isn't good. It's got all of the problems of big crossovers. It's big, it's sprawling, everyone is just wildly out of character. It's confusing to no real point, and it's, to me, kind of the nadir of Jim Shooter's storytelling mandates, which involved, you know, very straight-on angles, and that you have to always have everyone state their motivation in every issue, and it's just, it's simplistic, it's obnoxious, and it's boring. You mentioned before that you saw Secret Wars as somebody cramming a couple of handfuls of action figures into each other and making explosion noises, right? Yeah, absolutely. For me, that's what makes Secret Wars 1 kind of work. Yes, everything is very straightforward and simplified, and you have a bunch of plot elements and battles and stuff that happen for seemingly no reason and then are immediately reversed. But, you know, I was a kid that played with action figures, and that's kind of what you do. But you don't do it for 12 hours. I I did sometimes, I'm not going to lie. Did you really? You know, my friends and I would get way too into it. See, for me, I think Secret Wars could have been fun if it were about three issues, even if they'd been larger issues, but it cannot sustain 12 issues. Well, nonetheless, let's go ahead and dive into a, an admittedly very simplified version of what happens during those 12 issues. So we talked about, you know, the heroes and the villains are assembled in their space stations, and pretty quickly, the Beyonder creates this thing called Battle World, which is a term you would be quite familiar with if you've been following recent Marvel press. If you'd played the game Katamari Damacy, the beginning of Secret Wars is basically the opening to Katamari Damacy 1. Beyonder destroys all of the stars, destroys the galaxy, and just jams everything together in a big ball. That's actually quite true. I mean, it's not our galaxy. It's a different galaxy. But yeah, and he sort of creates these different continents that come from all these different worlds. And I really wish the comic had done more with that, like it looks like the new Secret Wars is going to, because, you know, it mentions it a couple times, but for the most part, that's not where the focus is. There is actually an obvious video game analog for each of these. Secret Wars 1 is Katamari Damacy, and Secret Wars 2 is Doki Doki Universe. I don't know that many people have played that game. We both did, for the record, they listeners. Should. It it's is great. lovely. It is a really, really wonderful all-ages game about a robot learning about feelings. Yes. So anyway, uh, pretty soon the heroes and the villains are sent down to the planet. Very quickly, a couple people break off. Well, before they're sent down to the planet, Galactus decides that he will have none of this and he is going to go take on the Beyonder. 
yes, and he is smacked down pretty quickly. Doom is there with him, sort of tagging along and sees this and is like, wait a minute, this isn't just a simple contest. Doom is like the supervillain equivalent of an ambulance chaser in this. He kind of is, but yeah, so he's one of the characters that breaks off because he's like, hey, if we just follow what the Beyonder's doing, then we're really missing out on an opportunity here. This guy has ultimate power. Let's figure out how we want to handle this. So Doom decides that he needs to go make overtures to the superheroes. And he starts to do that, but then he crashes, someone offers him a hand up, and he decides that that's it. He can't team up with these assholes, because they obviously don't respect him, because they offered to help him up after he crashed his spacecraft. Doom needs the aid of no man. Is that pity I see in your eyes, Captain America? And yours, Richards? Pity yourselves. I was a fool to think such as you might comprehend what only Doom can know. You will rue this moment. You, the others, the Beyonder, and the universe. Soon all will grovel at my feet. You ever get the feeling Jim Shooter just really hates superheroes? I get the feeling that Dr. Doom is amazing, mainly. Everything he says is perfect and glorious and shining, and I love him. So, yes, so the other character that breaks off is Magneto, because the heroes are initially like, wait, what the hell, why is Magneto here? And after it becomes clear, the Avengers really don't trust him. The X-Men, interestingly enough, are the ones that are more sympathetic. Well, the the X-Men don't really trust the Avengers. The X-Men don't really trust anyone else there. This is something we saw in Dazzler the movie, too. Shooter's X-Men are super paranoid. But yeah, the X-Men offer to basically fight for Magneto, and he's like, no, no mutant blood's going to be spilled for me. I am out. Screw you guys. This is ridiculous. So he goes off on his own. Doom kind of goes off on his own. And then we have the remaining heroes and the remaining villains. I feel like a lot of the things that happen in Secret Wars happen kind of arbitrarily, again, in the spirit of kids playing with action figures. And one of the things that one of these kids does is grab a couple action figures, maybe from like his sister She-Ra set. Doom pulls out of absolutely nowhere these two random women. And it's later retconned that he met them before. He uses his science machines of some sort to transform Skeeter and Marsha into Titania and Volcana, who are two characters who are going to be around for a long time. Um, You'll see Titania with the Absorbing Man, even in the present-day Marvel Universe, and Volcana turns up now and again, usually in relation to the Molecule Man. I got to admit, I kind of love Titania because, I mean, she's simplistic and she's really obnoxious, but she's kind of a great subversion of a lot of gender norms because literally all that this woman wants is to be like enormous and super fucking built. She just wants to be able to punch dudes. Right, and so she and the Absorbing man end up in this great relationship that is themed around punching dudes. It's awesome. She's a good fit for the Wrecking Crew. Oh, Absorbing Man's not with the Wrecking Crew. You'd think he would be based on his sort of hitting people with a big ball and chain. Well, and his name is Crusher, isn't it? Crusher Freel, yeah. So he'd be a shoo-in, but no, he usually does his own thing. I associate him so closely with the Wrecking Crew, and I don't know why. Well, at one point, him and the member of the Wrecking Crew that also uses a ball and chain are comparing their balls and chains. Oh, that's so sweet. I actually really like seeing the villains interact, because they really have no reason for cooperating other than the selfish goal of getting their wishes, and so there's just like a lot of hangout bro time. Yeah, the lizard just kind of runs away and lives in a swamp. It's kind of sad and adorable. Wasp finds him later and they make friends. Mm -hmm. But anyway, what happens pretty soon after these split-offs of Magneto and Doctor Doom is that there's another split-off, and that's the X-Men from the Avengers. Spider-Man actually stumbles upon the X-Men talking about how they don't trust the Avengers, they feel like they're hated and feared by everybody. They're kind of out of character in here, and it's the same kind of out of character we saw back in Dazzler the movie, also by Jim Shooter, where Storm is talking to Dazzler 
her on the phone. Storm says, you shouldn't flaunt your powers in public. Come to our secret New York fortress. My sense of the X-Men as Jim Shooter writes them is very, very different from my sense of the X-Men as they appear in any other Marvel comic. Like, they're this super insular, ultra-paranoid group who lives in kind of a bunker somewhere in, in upstate New York and believes that mutants should be kept secret, and it's sort of baffling. It is, but these are the X-Men that we see in Secret Wars, and so Spider-Man basically says he's going to tell on them, since their intent is clearly to join Magneto, they try to fight him and he trounces the entire X-Men team. And Professor Xavier then wipes his mind. Because literally everyone in this crossover is a complete jerk. So uh, after this, I mean, there's just sort of a lot of back and forth and heroes fighting villains and various people having schemes and Honestly, not very much of it's consequential, but a few things are. So one of them is that Molecule Man, he's getting sort of more and more confident because Volcana, who's apparently attracted to sort of milk toast, meek, but powerful men, he and Volcana start this relationship that we'll see later in Secret Wars 2. And we also learn that Molecule Man's powers, despite the fact that he's really chilled out since being in therapy, are almost as powerful as the Beyonders. And that's going to become yeah, a big deal. Yeah, he's nigh omnipotent. He is. The second thing that happens, well, they are in this highly powered fortress. And one of the things the fortresses can do is make new costumes. And it makes a new one for Spider-Man that is all black with a white logo on it and made of a material that he's unfamiliar with. And that is going to turn out long term to be Venom. Through humble origins of a random throwaway uh, couple of panels in Secret Wars comes one of the more popular Marvel characters ever. Yeah, his spider sense tells him that a, a nearby machine wants to make him a new costume. I mean, who hasn't that happened to? I I think this is something spiders are perpetually aware of when something nearby wants to make them a new costume. I mean, that's just science. That's just biology. That's just the animal kingdom. So we've mentioned this before because it's come up in X-Men for a couple of major plot points, but Secret Wars is where Colossus meets a woman named Zaji, who is the inhabitant of one of the alien worlds that got pulled into Battle World. She doesn't speak the same language as anybody else, any of the main characters, but she's this sort of uh, white-haired, very compassionate, very beautiful healer. She has these mystical or scientific or something healing abilities. Well, they're also very explicitly sexy. And initially, she's sort of romantically linked to the Human Torch. I didn't write down the quote, but oh man, the language he uses to hit on her is spectacular, and I'm going to use it to make valentines. Uh, yes, and then please don't give one of those to me. I'm going to, though. <laughs> yeah, Colossus falls for her, and it's him falling in love with this woman named Zaji that's what, even though she will die later in the series, is what causes him to break up with Kitty Pride when he returns to Earth. It's awkward. Like, he spends the first three quarters of the series just obsessing about Kitty. Anytime you see him, he's got angsting about Kitty thought balloons, and then suddenly he sees Zaji, and it's just like, whoop. And to be fair, I mean, Colossus is around 18 at this point. He's not the most mature dude in the world, so, you know, I, I kind of buy it. While all of these guys are facing off... Galactus looks down at Battleworld and goes, you know what? You know what that really looks like to me? You know those cookies where you just like throw in everything you've got around? And you've got like, you know, carob chips and butterscotch and all of the dried fruit you can find and like nuts and stuff and little bits of everything, a lot of different textures and tastes. The Beyonder baked him a battle cookie. Exactly. So Galactus goes, screw this fight. I'm just going to eat the planet. Right. And so he uses his immense galactic powers to teleport in his home world, which is this big kind of mechanical thingamajig. Well, it's a ship the size of a solar system. The heroes go back and forth on what to do because Reed Richards realizes, wait a minute, if Galactus achieves his goal and eats the planet, which will kill us all, that means he wins. And the Beyonder is going to give him his wish, which is going to be, we already know, to quell his planet's devouring hunger. And that means no more planets will be eaten. 
So maybe the ethical thing to do is to let Galactus eat the planet and kill us all to save trillions of lives. And he waffles about that for about an issue, and then he realizes that he's totally got a kid who's about to be born, and to hell with the rest of the universe, damn it, he's going to live. And what Doctor Doom does, so Doctor Doom has found slash resurrected this villain named Claw that we mentioned before, who's a living creature made of sound. And And then cuts him into paper-thin sheets. To create these focusing lenses to gather in the power from Galactus's homeworld spaceship thing. Now, Claw, it should be pointed out, Claw's lost his mind from all the stuff he's been through, which is too complicated to go into. Well, Claw has been trapped in Galactus's ship for years, so he's got some kind of resonance with it. Yeah, and so he he turns into this sort of, like, court jester slash Igor figure to Doctor Doom's Doctor Frankenstein, or Frankenstein. He's made of, like, solid sound, so being sliced into thin lenses doesn't actually hurt or harm him. Like, and he he's actually still, sings little songs yeah, about still, that fact. He's still cool. Like, he's still having cheerful conversations with Doctor Doom through this. Mm-hmm. Doctor Doom is actually successful, gets basically the power of Galactus, challenges the Beyonder, and takes him out. And at this point, Doom essentially becomes a benevolent god. And the benevolent part is important. Because after he declares that, you know, he's going to stop trying to dominate the world, he's going to try to solve problems now, he's going to try to do the right thing, all the heroes look at him and they're like, nope, going to take you out. At which for point, no good reason. Well, they just don't trust him, at which point a bolt from the blue comes out and kills all the heroes. Like, it legit kills all the heroes. And that's it. That's the end of the Marvel Universe. Done. That's how Secret Wars is going to end in 2015. I really like what happens after this point, which is that, you know, Doom is, is being victorious and Claw starts saying, huh, well, I wonder if they could have survived. Let me paint you this hypothetical picture. And he's doing it, you know, in his usual sing-song, jokey, I am not in touch with reality way. But he's like, well, what if... Uh, it turned out that Zaji found the dead heroes and sacrificed her life force to resurrect Colossus. And then what if Colossus found the almost dead form of Reed Richards, who was, you know, a little more durable, so survived, and put him in the healing machine that he saw Richards using before? And then what if that resurrected Richards enough for him to build a big machine to resurrect everybody else using Battleworld's energies? And Doom's like, holy crap, you just told me this story, and because I'm omnipotent, I accidentally maybe just did it without even realizing it. Right, Doom imagined it, and thus it comes to be. Thus it has already happened. And if you're playing with omnipotence in a story, like, this is the kind of stuff that's really fun to do. So I actually love that plot point. And Doom becomes acutely paranoid about his imagination at this point. He won't sleep. Pretty soon, the Avengers and the X-Men and all the heroes all attack him and manage to get him on the ropes enough for the disembodied spirit of the Beyonder, which was kind of around, like in Claw, for instance, which is what inspired Claw to tell that story, and takes his powers back. At that point, the heroes win, uh, Doom and Claw are banished by the Beyonder, and they, aside from the Thing, who decides to stay on the world, where he can, for some reason, control for his Thing powers, while. Yeah. they all go home, including a dragon that goes back with Lockheed that you may have remembered from that one mediocre issue of the X-Men that was set in Japan. And now we're done. We're done with Secret Wars 1. That's pretty much what happens there. So Secret Wars 1, it's a relatively straightforward, if unnecessarily long story. Secret Wars 2 is something else entirely. For me, both Secret Wars 1 and 2 kind of feel like staring into the abyss. They're this kind of organic product of the comics industry that we created and this horror that we have lovingly raised and that has borne these monsters. And I mean, even Jim Shooter, who wrote them, is kind of the kid comics raised. Like, he started writing comics professionally in his teens. He grew up writing Legion of Superheroes. It's like staring into the twisted reflection of everything that is wrong with shared universe superhero comics in the mid-1980s. On this podcast, we try not to speculate on the personalities or the motivations of the creators that have created these works, because that's really not what the podcast is about. 
And so similarly, we're going to try not to do that with Jim Shooter, but it is important to remember that Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief of Marvel at this time, so basically, he was the one that decided what happened. And Secret Wars 2 is kind of, I kind of feel like it's his magnum opus, like it's his statement on life, or at least on American life in the 1980s. It's kind of the passion of Jim Shooter. So, and because he was running Marvel, he basically just said, hey, for the next nine months, what we're going to do is have the story of the Beyonder discovering what humanity is all about cross over with almost everything. So I want to qualify. I know very little about Jim Shooter as a human being, as an individual. What I know about him as EIC mostly comes from accounts and public record, from the How book, from interviews from Claremont's X-Men, stuff like that. The strong impression that I get, and the text kind of backs this up for me, is that Secret Wars 2 is what happens when someone has a huge amount of power and absolutely no oversight. What it kind of reminds me of is the first Star Wars trilogy versus the second. In the first, George Lucas, you know, he wasn't in charge of everything, so he had people, like, editing him and saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that plot point. Let's all work together to make this a good work. In the prequel movies, George Lucas did whatever he wanted, and we all saw how that turned out. And that's kind of like Secret Wars 2. It's just Jim Shooter being able to do whatever he wants to the entire Marvel Universe. Secret Wars 2 is a very personal story. The Beyonder is so intrigued by the superheroes and supervillains who he's dragged to battle world that he decides to come to the world they're from and try to understand this driving force behind them, desire. And it really reads like someone parsing out their midlife crisis. It's an interesting follow-up to Secret Wars in that the only thing it shares in common with it is that it's about this dude named the Beyonder. He's a major force in it. It's not secret. It's not a war. It's not on Battle World. It's not heroes fighting villains. It's just the Beyonder doing his thing and overlapping with a bunch of Marvel Universe stuff. And boy, let's talk about some of the things the Beyonder does. So the Beyonder kind of has fixated on one particular villain who he pulled in, and that is the nigh-omnipotent Molecule Man. Yeah, so the series opens up with the Beyonder, who at this point is composed of like different parts of the costumes of all the different heroes and villains he saw in Secret Wars 1, crashing into Denver, which is where Molecule Man and Volcana have set up this very nice suburban life. He literally crashes through their couch. And so he's like, hey, I want to understand humanity. And the Molecule Man is a real nice guy, so instead of saying, what the hell are you doing here? Get out of my couch. He says, well, okay, I think what you have to do then is experience what it is to be alive, to live. They suggest that he experience life and that he go to L.A. Those are the two pieces of advice they give him. The Molecule Man's a very nice, sympathetic character, as is Volcana, but they're not necessarily the best decision makers in the world. They try. And so what we get then for the remaining nine issues is the Beyonder's personal odyssey through the Marvel Universe as he tries to learn to do things like poop. <laughs> we'll come back to that. <laughs> and love and wear clothes and understand desire and take over the world he god i don't think secret wars 2 is good by any reasonable standard but it's certainly interesting it is without a doubt the most baffling impossible to fully comprehend comic series i have ever read and i have read a lot of comics yeah i want to point out that we have both read both the filth and stray toasters there's nothing like it. Okay, so what happens in Secret Wars 2 as the Beyonder goes off on his odyssey? Okay, well, he heads to L.A. 
In L.A., we meet bitter comics writer Stuart Cadwell. Stuart Cadwell has abandoned comics and sold out to film, but he's bitter and he's miserable, and he feels that no one espouses his stereotypically 80s liberal values. The Beyonder empowers him and makes him nigh omnipotent. Stuart Caldwell gets a flying horse and a lightning sword and just sort of goes around attacking people for fun. Yes, he becomes Thunder Sword. As this is happening, Charles Xavier wakes up and gets a telepathic newsflash that, holy crap, the Beyonder is somehow on Earth? This isn't good. And he's still too messed up after what's been going on in X-Men at the time, which is him recovering from being resurrected by the sewer wizard of the Morlocks. So he actually sends Magneto to go meet up with the X-Men and the New Mutants and attack the Beyonder. The X-Men are initially reluctant to trust him because, again, these are Jim Shooter-written X-Men and they don't trust anybody, but they decide to team up with him. They attack the Beyonder. It does not go well. Yeah, and to, to clarify, we should talk about who the X-Men and the New Mutants are at this point, or at least the ones that are around. The X-Men are basically where we are in coverage, so Nightcrawler, Colossus, Rogue, Wolverine, Shadowcat, and Rachel Summers— And the New Mutants are off in Max Rocker's arena that you may remember from the Beauty and the Beast miniseries. We're going to be getting to that coverage soon. Yeah, that's a little bit ahead of where we are right now. Yeah, and the ones that Magneto is able to retrieve are Cannonball and Magic, and he also retrieves Dazzler and Lila Shaney, who are there with him. Dazzler is going to play very heavily into this. That she will. Oh, God. So they all fight against Thundersword until Rachel Summers telepathically realizes that somebody else is there, that being the Beyonder. He shows up, and he's still just sort of poking at things to see how they work. So he pulls the demonic dark child persona out of Ilyana Rasputin. Now, this is still early in Ilyana's sort of demonic transformation that we'll, that we'll see over the course of many, many issues. So she freaks out and gets the hell out of there. Next, the Beyonder heads to New York. And there he tries to determine what humans do. Well, humans wear clothing and humans eat. Yeah, and so he uh, tries to eat and ends up getting some food from a street vendor and uh, chomps down in his new human body onto a uh, bottle of soda, including the glass. He's sort of River City ransoming it. But his human body, by the way, is specifically Captain America's body. Yeah, so he's figuring that out. He wanders into a clothing store, the, the window of which has been broken by a riot, because some stuff from Fantastic Four involving the hate monger and Psycho Man and Malice is going on. Which crosses briefly over into Secret Wars 2. They went to such pains to integrate it with the rest of the Marvel Universe. Baffling stuff is just happening in the background and the margins continually because it's what's happening in the other comics. Yeah, like there are a number of official Secret Wars tie-ins, and it's some ridiculous amount. Like more than 30 issues are affected here of various comics. Basically, unless you're reading the entire Marvel Universe, you're never going to get the full story. And I don't know how deliberate that was. I don't know how much of that was just trying to get people to buy new books. But you can't just follow one thing. The impression I get, and I'm going to invoke Sean Howe at this point because he covers this pretty extensively in in Marvel Comics' The Untold Story, is that Shooter was really, really fixated on the Beyonder being a central figure across the Marvel line at this point. That he be understood and that he be written sympathetically and correctly. So you get things like Denny O'Neill, who was asked to integrate the Beyonder into Daredevil, and tried, and and Shooter felt like he didn't understand the character enough, and so O'Neill just sort of tried to keep him to the periphery, and Shooter rewrote the issue, pulled royalties away from O'Neill. Writers would rewrite an issue three and four times and just be told, you're not getting it, you're not getting it, or, well, you know, you've done it wrong because he's actually going to change costumes like no one knew about this stuff coming in and it just got weirder and, and more and more involved and tangled and yeah so what we see for the duration of this series and we'll get to this in our, our x-men and new mutants coverage 
is a Marvel Universe completely derailed by this event. People talk about company-mandated crossovers and stuff, and I think most people think of that as a product of mostly the 90s or maybe the 2000s, but honestly, I think this is the most extreme example of that in the entire history of the Marvel Universe. Well, because what you have here isn't a committee-driven event. Secret Wars 1 is a marketing-driven event. Secret Wars 2 becomes this weird passion project of one person who's in a position where no one can say, dude, no, you have to stop. This is getting too weird. And speaking of weird, the Beyonder wanders into a clothing store and asks, you know, why is clothing? The person who works there is like, maybe you should ask a friend because you scare me. So he goes and he finds Spider-Man, who he recalls from Secret Wars 1. The Beyonder's definition of friend is, I mean, I guess everyone he knows are just people he yanked into an alternate dimension and forced to fight. So that's what he's got. Oh, and he's decided that violence is how people greet each other because a lot of people have randomly attacked him. So yeah, he meets up with Spider-Man and just shows up in his apartment after stalking him for a little bit. And so Spider-Man hosts him for a while. And, and, and explains to him, you know, how to eat. The Beyonder is very simplistic, and almost all of his questions are why. So why is eating? His manner of speaking is very much like that for a while, until he starts to understand the world better. So Spider-Man's at some point, yeah, is there anything I can get you? A drink of water, maybe? Will that relieve this strange pressure, this fullness I feel in my lower abdomen? Uh, no, it'll probably make it worse. Sounds like you have to, uh, go to the bathroom? Explain! Yeah, so when we say Spider-Man teaches the Beyonder how to poop, we are not joking. This is a plot event. What I really like is when he comes out of the bathroom, the Beyonder just says, like, The experience is consummated. (laughs) And then he teleports away. Right. And, like, how does this work? I mean, it's like, okay, the Beyonder just took a crap in my crappy apartment's bathroom. This cosmic being just voided his cosmic bowels. He flushes and Kirby Crackle just overflows everywhere. Is this a defining life experience? And if it is, is your life just super weird from then on? Like, well, you know, I mean, this is the happiest day of my life. I'm marrying Mary Jane Watson, but the Beyonder poops in my bathroom. What does this mean in the context of that time the Beyonder pooped in my bathroom? No, no, I feel like this is the perfect summation of Spider-Man's relationship to the Marvel Universe. <laughs> I think you may be right. It's like a cosmic figure shows up in his apartment, demands that he explain eating, uses his bathroom, yells, and teleports away. <laughs> the experience is consummated. I think I may have to yell that after every time I use the bathroom for the rest of my life. You know, I, I really can't blame you for that. Okay, I, uh, I'm glad you understand. So here's the thing with this with me, is that again, I don't know that much about Jim Shooter, but this is obviously this dedicated personal story, and so I keep on imagining him as the Beyonder. Oh man, like just trying to understand life? Just like going through Marvel editorial being like, Nascenti, why is clothing? <laughs> DeFalco, what is this fullness I feel? <laughs> and the editorial's like, oh, he's the boss, so I guess we'll try to explain. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, Kirby dots are coming out from under the bathroom door. <laughs> Is this the weirdest thing we've ever talked about on the show? (laughs) Well, Patreon supporters, these are your dollars at work. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so the Beyonder continues his journey to understand humanity, and a whole lot of stuff happens. We're going to do sort of a a basic summary of it, because like you were saying, Rachel, a lot of this is just not going to be that relevant. And I want to say, if you are reading for enjoyment, this is about where you'll want to stop. Like, it's it's really funny and kind of baffling at this point, but... From here, it just gets really dark and disturbing and spirals into existential despair and cosmic implications, but kind of baffling nonsensical cosmic implications. And it's just kind of a migraine. 
So yeah, I just go through like the first five issues and then take a break. Well, we're actually not nearly that far in our in our description oh, of it. No, no. But no, we'll we'll go through this. So essentially, each issue has like its own kind of theme, its own sort of life lesson about what it means to be a human being in America in the eighties. So we've covered food. We've covered clothing. What are we still missing? Let's see. There's money, there's sex, and there's death. Well, so money is what comes next because the Beyonder sleeping on the streets, he meets this homeless woman who tells him about money after he tries to just take a suit out of a store and points him to the heroes for hire, at which point Luke Cage explains the concept of money to the Beyonder. And the Beyonder responds by turning their office building into gold. Which itself derails two full issues of various Spider-Man titles into a story about an office building made of gold in the middle of New York. Having thus destroyed a week of business for Heroes for Hire and ruined Spider-Man's life and plumbing, Beyonder heads back out onto the street where he meets a hooker with a heart of gold and gets held up by Vinny the Gangster. And so this leads into a montage of basically Vinny teaching the Beyonder how to be a person. And honestly, Vinny probably does more toward the Beyonder's development than like any other character in the entire series. Yeah, Vinny teaches him how to put on pants and things like that. He also hires about 12 prostitutes to teach him about sex, which is a little uncomfortable. The Beyonder, being a quick study, rises through the ranks of the mob from enforcer to criminal mastermind and then takes over the United States. Because what what else are you going to do when you're an omnipotent god from another universe? He actually does, yeah, he manipulates the minds of everybody on the planet to take over the world. And it's only when he meets a Transformer named Circuit Breaker, because yes, Marvel had the Transformers license at this point, that he decides not to do that. So he goes back to the drawing board, you know, what do I do? How does Circuit Breaker change his mind? It's too complicated to explain. Like, Circuit Breaker mostly talks about how she hates robots. Eh, like I said, let's not worry about it. So next he decides that, well, okay, I look at Molecule Man of Volcana and they're happy. I need to fall in love. And so he decides, looking through all the women in the world, that it's Dazzler who is the woman for him. So far, he's been having meaningless sex with women he's been mind-controlling into loving him. Hmm. Yeah, so that's been happening. Oh, at this point, he's also changed his hair. So he has he now dresses like Michael Jackson and has a jerry curl. Yes, and this is the Beyonder you're probably familiar with if you've seen him. He decides that Dazzler is the only woman for him. He tries to give her everything. Yeah, he gets in a pointless fight with Alpha Flight. He takes her to the moon. He makes her a super successful rock star. She still doesn't love him until he mind controls her into it. And then he decides that that's just not the same. And he goes off to brood in the woods. And while he's brooding is actually one of my favorite parts of the series. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say it is it is my favorite part of the series. And that's the first appearance of a character we'll be talking a lot about in the future. Boom Boom. Tabitha Smith is awesome. Boom Boom is one of those characters who I, I don't know if she's prominent enough to be divisive. But I think a lot of people kind of overlook her, and she is one of my favorite sort of X-Men perennial supporting characters. Yeah, and so her first appearance right here is where she's running away from her abusive family and trying to get to this school for mutants she's heard of that she sees as sort of, you know, the place that's going to be her salvation. And she runs into the Beyonder in the woods, and he's miserable because he has discovered desire, but it just makes him unsatisfied, and he misses his universe where he was everything and contained everything, and... Her dad's just tried to beat her to death because she's a mutant, so they make friends over this. Yeah, and I I really like the dialogue here. Like, a lot of the dialogue in the series is not so hot, but with her, Mm -hmm. hey, I know all about rejection, man. First, you think it's your fault, like you're the jerk, so you try to fix yourself, and since that never works, you just feel more useless and stupid, so you pretend it isn't happening. You cover it up, like, open for business as usual during our disaster, you know? Or else you wallow in it, like you turn it into a game where you get 10 points for each rejection, and whoever is the most miserable wins. Sometimes you get mad and try to hurt him back. I did that to Daddy, which is why he punched my lamps out. I should have put a bigger time bomb in his lasagna. Oh well. 
Anyway, you slice it. It leaves you lonely. You just want so bad for somebody to want you. And then she hugs him goodbye, and as he leaves, puts a time bomb in his pocket, and that is Boom Boom in a nutshell. Yeah. I love her so much. She is fierce and feisty and deeply cynical and deeply hopeful all at once, and she's going to become a major player in a year or two from here. But this is her first appearance. And so uh, she hangs out with Beyonder a little bit more, and at one point he tries to sort of win her affection and show her how impressive he is by starting a fight with the Celestials and almost destroying a planet. Yeah, that's cool. She ultimately lures him in, turns him into the Avengers, and has them show up to beat him down. And of course he wins, but as he leaves, he just says, 10 points, I win. Now, before that happens, he tries to give her a lift to the Xavier School. And the X-Men, again, being Shooter's X-Men, respond like, so she knocks on the door and they answer the door and they're like, they're about to let her in. And then they notice that the Beyonder's outside sitting in the car and they all run past her to jump him and kill him. Yeah, and so thus Boom Boom being admitted to a place that could finally help her control her powers and provide her with family and support, she just says, well, I guess that didn't work out and wanders off. If you'll want to look at the fact that Boom Boom never quite trusts the X-Men, you can probably trace it back to Secret Wars too. Mm-hmm. So a whole bunch of other things happen, but the short version is that the Beyonder spends some time as the champion of life, uh, doing good things for the world, and decides to eradicate death until all the cosmic beings in the universe, like, you know, Eternity and all of them, freak out about this. So at that point, he empowers another human who's been working for him to become the new death. And Mephisto, in the meantime, after this, is scared of the Beyonder, uh, since Mephisto is also a cosmic force and is in love with death, uh, like Thanos. And he builds this big machine called Beyonder's Bane to kill the Beyonder, empowers a bunch of supervillains to be connected to it. Also the Thing. Who ends up uh, deciding to protect the Beyonder, because that's what heroes do. The Thing is a movie star at this point. Uh, yes, he was also briefly on Team America, the motorcycle guys. And so the thing protects the Beyonder from these villains, and Beyonder's Bane does, ends up not taking out the Beyonder. But the Beyonder does get kind of depressed, and since all of his plans are failing, all of his attempts to understand humanity are failing. And he decides that the thing to do is to destroy the universe. He does. He's like, well, you know, I was content when I was the only thing in my universe, but now there's this other one, and I've been dissatisfied ever since. The X-Men end up attacking him, led by Rachel Summers, who is now the new embodiment of the Phoenix, which we'll be getting into in future episodes. And again, it's worth pointing out that a lot of the stuff that's relevant here, like that the Beyonder has killed the New Mutants and just wiped them out of existence, so no one no one even remembers them. Most of this stuff happens in the X-Men and New Mutants crossovers, and those titles are going to connect a lot more closely during the Secret Wars 2 period. But almost all of the actual universe-relevant stuff happens in the crossing-over titles. It doesn't happen in Secret Wars 2. So, yes, the Beyonder manages to beat the X-Men and then the New Mutants, and he's sort of going back and forth about whether to destroy the universe, and eventually decides, you know what I really need to do, everyone keeps telling me, I need to be mortal. To understand consequences, to understand meaning, I need to not be this immortal being that I am right now. So he builds this big machine that'll make him mortal and sort of gestate him repeatedly and goes into it and gets killed and goes back through it a couple times. And in the meantime, to test it, resurrects the new mutants who are now sort of without souls or minds and are very glum and empty. This will become plot relevant in New Mutants, but not actually in Secret Wars too. Very much so. Ultimately, the heroes, including Molecule Man and Volcana, do manage to break in, and just as he's about to be born as this new baby human, Molecule Man kills him. I feel like this is a great summation of superheroes as shown in Secret Wars 2, that this is the time that the superheroes all got together and saved the universe by killing a baby. Pretty much. This death in combination with some machinations of Molecule Man forced the Beyonder's essence back into his universe where it scatters and creates, you know, life and diversification and plants in an actual cosmos. And so thus the Beyonder finds meaning in his own death. That is Secret Wars too. 
That is a lot of Secret Wars, too. So how does this tie in, do you think, to the upcoming Secret Wars? Oh, there's another story called Secret War that has absolutely nothing to do with this. And that's a story about Nick Fury and wars on terror and a secret invasion of Laveria. The Beyonder doesn't figure in at all. Don't worry about that. Right. But as far as the new Secret Wars, the one that's going to be happening in 2015, I mean, clearly Battleworld is being brought back in a big way. It looks like the Beyonder is probably not, although it wouldn't surprise me if he was referenced since we have all these different storylines coming together. It seems like it's really more of a thematic tie than any kind of a, a plot tie. Yeah, it seems more like it's playing with the concept of battle world of this kitchen sink cookie planet. Exactly, exactly. So I would not lean too heavily on Secret Wars 1 and 2 as predictions for what's going to be coming in this year. And I guess that's really about it as far as Secret Wars. So listeners, thank you for bearing with us. I know that was a lot. It was a lot for us too. Well, that's sort of it as far as Secret Wars, because Secret Wars 2 is going to be echoing through X-Men and New Mutants for a while in our coverage. You're, You're going to be hearing a lot more about those over the next few weeks. Very true. Very true. Those will probably make a little more sense and be a little bit less single- minded than Secret Wars 1 and 2 were. So with that, let's move on to some questions. So Pawpaw5771 on Tumblr asks, Stuart Cadwell slash Thundersword from Secret Wars 2 number 1, he's got to be based on someone Shooter had a beef with, right? His rant about writing pablum, censors about what he'd do if he had some power and the things he'd straighten out, only to find that he's powerless without his Shazam award, and being in tears after realizing he destroyed the places he worked. I mean, this all has to be some kind of passive-aggressive meta-commentary about someone Shooter's worked with, I assume. You assume correctly. This has never actually been officially confirmed, but based on his history and his career arc, and also just based on the way he's drawn, it's pretty obvious that Stuart Cadwall is supposed to be Howard the Duck creator Steve Gerber. He looks just like Gerber, and Gerber at that point had left Marvel, had left comics to go work in Hollywood on animation. Wow, that's really petty if that's the case. It's unbelievably petty. All right, so the noir guy on Tumblr asks... What's the best thing and the worst thing to come out of Secret Wars? Okay, so the best thing I would say is absolutely Boom Boom. Now, that's both in terms of her role in the Secret Wars 2 storyline and in terms of the character she would later become. I have a huge soft spot for Boom Boom, and she would not exist without this series. The worst thing? Everything else. Kind of. Like, there's so much stuff that's just unnecessary that just derails the Marvel Universe in ways that are kind of pointless and just sort of delay people getting back to their plots. That being said, I do really enjoy uh, the New Mutant storyline that comes out of the Beyonder killing and resurrecting them. There's some really interesting character work that takes place after that that I'm looking forward to getting to in our coverage. I'd say as far as the worst thing, I mean, I, I think it sets a terrible precedent for future events. Yeah, no, that's that's actually quite true in, in a more meta way. Lastly, an anonymous listener on Tumblr asks, What major changes to the X-Men universe do you want to see happen in Secret Wars 2015? I've said this before, gonna say it again. My investment in X-Books as a reader is largely in the fact that it's a good premise that leads to interesting stories. What I would like to see come out in Secret Wars, if it's actually possible, is change. I would like to see a version of the X-Men and a version of the Marvel Universe that I hadn't previously conceived before. I would like to see the status quo shaken up in substantive ways. That sounds about right to me, yeah. Meanwhile, we have some thanks from our buddy Victor Von Doom for some of our Patreon supporters. With the help of the satisfactory Ian Sharman and the so-called Lord of the Ocean, Matt Waters, that fool Richards and his heroic allies were almost defeated on Battleworld. Doom has now returned, but was advised by Darth Lenore and Ronanfish to not waste his efforts on the Beyonder's return. Perhaps they have a place in Latveria after all. Perhaps. I love that you get so into those. Well, if you're going to do something, do it right. 
So I believe we are very much out of time. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is as always recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts, the producer of the Geek Remixed trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast Full of Sith. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website, rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men Evolution Vaults, and much more. The podcast is completely listener-supported uh, by people like the aforementioned Ian Charman, Matt Waters, Ronan Fish, and Darth Lenore. And it's made possible by, yeah, by, by our generous Patreon supporters. Thank you guys so much. Please uh, keep doing what you're doing. We love you. If you'd like to become a supporter, check out the link at the top of our website. Next week, we'll be joined by writer Simon Spurrier for the debut of the wild-haired, world-bending mutant who broke reality twice. David Haller, better known as Legion. Legion.